the National Archives podcast series, The Treaty of Utrecht, presented by James Faulkner. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me to speak. My name is James Faulkner, and uh, for 25 years I was a soldier, and during the course of 25 years, undetected crime managed to talk about and discuss the campaigns of the Duke of Marlborough, partly because Dr. David Chandler was my uh, tutor when I was at Sandhurst, and he was in full Marlborough flow at the time. And as a result, since retiring from the army, I've had the opportunity to write a few books about the Duke of Marlborough and the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, and to lead battlefield tours and to give talks of this kind. With particular regard this afternoon, of course, to the Treaty of Utrecht. Not a single treaty, of course, it was a series of treaties to bring to an end the 11-year-long War of the Spanish Succession, this ruinously expensive war that, uh, that was going nowhere. But first of all, I think, in order to set the scene and to see why there had to be treaties in the first place, we need to look at the war itself and the protagonists in the war. And the great difficulty, of course, was that Carlos II of Spain, Carlos Le Loco, Carlos the Sufferer, as he was known, terrible Habsburg, over- overdeveloped Habsburg jaw, had no children, despite having two wives, uh, not at the same time, I hasten to add. He had no brothers, no sisters. And when he died, towards the, uh, which was likely towards the end of the 17th century, the vexed question is, who would replace Carlos II, Carlos the Sufferer, on the throne in Madrid? And there were two potential claimants in terms of bloodline. One was Archduke Charles, the youngest son of Emperor Leopold of Austria, the Holy Roman Empire. And the other was Philippe, Duc d'Anjou, the youngest grandson of... Uh, Louis, Louis XIV, the son king, the king of France. The youngest grandson, because the older grandson, of course, would be in line for the throne of France himself. And the two were, were, not, were mutually incompatible. The problem, of course, was that the Spanish Empire was huge. Tremendous holdings in the Americas, immense, immense wealth in Central and Southern America, the Philippines, the Spanish Netherlands, what we know today as Belgium, immensely wealthy region, uh, in terms of tax gathering, much of northern Italy, Sicily, the Balearic Islands, enclaves on the um, North African coast, you name it. The Spanish Empire was huge, but it was militarily moribund. It was no longer the power it was. And it was almost the weak man of Europe at the time. Now, for Austria to have a prince on the throne of Spain would increase the power of Austria to an insupportable degree, insupportable by France who would remember the old Charles V Empire, the Habsburg encirclement of France, the north to the east to the south. If, on the other hand, a French prince sat on the throne of Spain, this would be insupportable to the rest of Europe, because Louis XIV, bless his cotton socks, had spent the last 30 years on a series of aggressive defensive wars to push out his borders, particularly north and northeastern France, to establish what we basically now see as the natural borders of France. And so neither a French prince nor a Spanish prince on the throne of Spain uh, an Austrian prince, beg pardon, on the throne of Spain would be acceptable in, in general. And so a neat solution was arrived at in the late 1690s, and that was that Joseph Ferdinand, the young son of the Elector of Bavaria, should be nominated as Carlos's successor when he died. Joseph Ferdinand had a claim because his mother was a daughter of the Emperor Leopold of, of Austria. Therefore, he had a bloodline which connected him to the, uh, the Spanish, Spanish royal family. Problem was, Joseph Ferdinand died in 1699 of smallpox. And so the whole thing fell apart. And in 1700, when uh, Carlos at last died, despite the earnest attempts of his doctors and incantations of his priests, his will, which had been changed just before his death, 
left the vacant throne. The will, which had been changed just before Carlos died, left the throne of Spain to Philippe, Duc d'Anjou, youngest grandson of Louis XIV. And this news came to Fontainebleau, where the court was in session at the time, and Louis XIV was in a dilemma. He could see the trouble this would cause. He was no fool. In many ways, he was a great man. And he could see what the, the whole of Western Europe would be set against him if he allowed a French prince, his grandson, to take the throne of Spain. But his own son, the Dauphin, talked his father round. He, he wanted this throne for his, his youngest son. And in the Grand Council, uh, when they'd gone, to, they'd gone to Versailles by this time, in November 1701, the Duke de Saint-Simon, who was there at the time, wrote that after supper, the king, contrary to all precedent, ordered the doors of his private chambers to be thrown open. And the assembled multitude, it was a very busy court that day, should enter. And then, glancing majestically across the numerous company, gentlemen, said he, indicating the Duke d'Anjou, this is the King of Spain. Dramatic. Tout de théâtre there. Now, Louis XIV, I say, knew there would be trouble. But he did his best to set the concerns at this accession of French power, as it might be seen, at rest. Messages and emissaries were sent to William III, the King of England, to the States General in, in uh, The Hague, in Holland, uh, to uh, the Elector of Brandenburg, who would soon become the King of Prussia, in Berlin, the Elector of Hanover, or the Electress, rather, Sophia Dorothea, George I's mother, and to the Emperor Leopold in Austria, and Victor Amadeus, Duke of Savoy, all, who himself had a claim, he thought, for the throne of Spain, assuring them that their interests would not be put at risk by this acceptance by the French king, or, or French king, on behalf of his grandson, of the throne of Spain. And that the two thrones would always be kept separate. Never would you have a union of France and Spain. So all might have been well, with a bit of sure-footed diplomacy, because no one wanted war, because no one could afford it. The previous decade... The Nine Years' War had basically bankrupted Western Europe and no one wanted to go to war again, certainly not just for the throne of Spain. But somehow it couldn't be avoided. And in February 1702, wrong, the latter part of 1701, an alliance was formed between England, Great Britain to become, as it was become in 1707, the States General of Holland and Imperial Austria, called the Grand Alliance, to keep an eye on and make sure that the power of France was limited and didn't become a threat once again. But Louis XIV fumbled the whole scene, which was not like him. And he sent his own French troops to occupy towns in the Spanish Netherlands, which were themselves occupied by Dutch troops under the terms of a treaty, which gave them a barrier against future French aggression. Now, this is a terribly clumsy move by Louis XIV. From his point of view, as, a, as an absolute monarch, he simply saw this as safeguarding his own grandson's possessions. The Spanish Netherlands were Spanish territory, his grandson was now the King of Spain, and he needed good French troops in place there to ensure his grandson's possessions were secure. But of course it's a tremendous snub to the Dutch, who had to withdraw from this, this cherished barrier that they'd, they'd established. It seemed that Louis XIV was up to his old tricks again, because of course in the 1670s, France had attacked Holland, and the Dutch had only escaped by breaching their sea dikes and flooding their land to drive the French out again. So it was a very clumsy move by Louis XIV. And then, of course, there was James II, the exiled King of England, who was in Saint-Germain, and he was dying in early 1702. And Louis XIV went to his deathbed, and, of course, they were great, great and long-standing friends. And in the emotion of the moment, with James II breathing his last, Louis XIV declared that, that France considered his son to be James III, the rightful heir to the throne of England and the throne of Scotland. Terrible diplomatic gaffe 
terrible diplomatic gaffe, because the Treaty of Rizik of 1697 had established that France would not interfere with the domestic policies of, of England. I'll call it Great Britain from now on, but came Great Britain in the 1700s. And in addition to which, the Austrians and French were already fighting in northern Italy because there were, there were too many disputes over the territory there. And so it, it seemed that the whole thing couldn't be avoided. And in March 1702, war was declared by the, uh, the Grand Alliance on France and on the French prince, on Spain, in, in the shape of the French prince, Carlos II, uh, Philip, Duc d'Anjou, who became Felipe V of Spain. And so the, the key players in all this, Carlos II, Louis XIV, William III, died, of course, before they could declare war, fell off his horse outside Hampton Court, fractured his collarbone, never recovered. His uh, sister-in-law, Queen Anne, James II's youngest daughter, came to the throne. That sunshine day, as John Evelyn wrote it, England once again had an English monarch. Emperor Leopold of Austria, bad ruler, but very good husband, and a kind, a kind master, apparently. The United Provinces of Holland, Felipe, Duke d'Anjou, Felipe V of Spain, and Carl, Archduke of Austria, Carlos III of Spain. And this was the problem. We had two kings of Spain, Felipe V or Carlos III, a Frenchman or, or an Austrian, what do you want? And so that was why the war was fought in the first place. A war no one wanted, a war no one could afford, but it seemed a war that no one could avoid. It was ever thus. The Treaty of Grand Alliance agreed between Britain, Holland and Austria late in 1701. Principal aims, there were many aims, but these are the principal aims, that the thrones of Spain and France should be, always be kept separate. This was a fear that the thrones would, that France and Spain would, would, amount, would merge. Nonsense, of course, because the two people wouldn't ha- it was too incompatible. It couldn't happen. But there was, it was a genuine fear at the time. The thrones should always be kept separate. Austria should receive territorial concessions, principally in the Milanese in northern Italy. Holland should regain its barrier towns, these towns in the Spanish Netherlands that uh, Louis XIV sent his own troops to occupy. The Elector of Brandenburg was to become the King of Prussia. He declared himself the King of Prussia, actually, in 1701, but, but Louis XIV hadn't acknowledged it. And that the maritime powers, that's Britain and Holland, should be free to trade in the... I've put the West Indies, actually it's the Indies, free to trade in the Americas, because... This very lucrative overseas trade on which Britain and Holland uh, placed so much weight uh, was largely in the hands of French and Spanish merchantmen. And, and the British and Dutch were excluded. And so trade advantages were looked for as well. In addition to which, the subsidies would be paid to German states like Hanover, Hesse, um, Brandenburg, Prussia uh, to provide troops for the alliance and that the parties to the alliance should not make a separate peace. That was Article 8. And a jolly important article it was too. You'll notice that nowhere there, and those are the main aims, is there a provision, a demand, that Archduke Karl should be the King of Spain. That was not the demand of the Grand Alliance. So what happened in the war itself? The main events, as I see them, from a, from a British point of view, as tends to be the case. 1702, war was declared at the gates of St James's Palace, and in The Hague and in Vienna at the same time, on Louis XIV and France, and Philippe V of Spain and Spain, the, the, French, the French interest in Spain, as you might put it. Uh, and Louis XIV, ever the wit, on hearing that uh, Britain had declared war on him, that Queen Anne had declared war on him, said, turned to his courtiers and said, I am growing old, the ladies are now declaring war on me. You know, I like Louis XIV, he was, he was, Quite a man in many ways. 
two years of, of not much happening, basically, uh, although um, the, the alliance failed to make any progress in Spain, which was pretty important. Then in 1704, turning point of the war, 13th of August, 1704, hot Wednesday, down in Bavaria, the Battle of Blenheim was fought, and the Duke of Marlborough, England's captain general and the commander of the Anglo-Dutch armies, and Prince Eugène of Savoy, the imperial field commander, destroyed Marshal Tallard's French army and drove Marshal Marzan's army and the Electorate of Bavaria off the field in disorder. 13,000 unwounded French prisoners taken on the battlefield. That's a sure sign of utter defeat. Unwounded prisoners. Men who, who, who have a choice but give up. 13,000 unwounded French prisoners. Utter catastrophe. What was the distress of the king, the Duke of Saint-Simon wrote, when the news came to Versailles? We were not accustomed to such misfortune. And Louis XIV, whose aim had been to drive Austria out of the war by attacking Vienna, hence the need to fight in Bavaria in the first place, lost the ability to win the war at that point. He could not replace Tallard's army. Those losses couldn't be made good in the time available. And so he could no longer dominate the political scene, dominate militarily in Western Europe. But it remained to be seen, of course, whether he noticed that, whether he'd recognise it. And the war went on. 1705 was a, a year of uh, lack of success for the alliance, uh, they couldn't make the most of their success at Blenheim. But in 1706, once again, turning points. The battles of Ramillies on Whit Sunday, May the 23rd, 1706, fought just the south of Brussels, where Marlborough destroyed another French army, that under that Marshal Villeroy, and sent them fleeing. And he, he, he drove his army forward to, to overrun the whole of the Spanish Netherlands in the space of six weeks. This was a region of immense wealth, immense importance to the war because it was perhaps one of the wealthiest parts of the Spanish Empire. And yet, Marlborough had overrun the place in six weeks. A war that took six years would have been worth it for the Spanish Netherlands. He got it in six weeks. I think Winston Churchill said that it was at Ramillies, after Ramillies, it was as if Marlborough's army had thrown its weight against an unlatched door and simply fallen through because of their success. In September, same year, the Battle of Turin where Eugène again defeated another French army and saved Turin, the Savoyard capital at the time. And with those defeats for France, in particular the destruction of Villeroy's army at Ramillies, Louis XIV lost the war. He lost the ability to win the war at Blenheim. He lost the war at Ramillies. But once again, could he be brought to see this? With, with, with his, his, um, his mentality, his persona as the Sun King. In the meantime, the alliance, the Grand Alliance, made a terrible mistake. Flushed with such wonderful success, when anything could be, could be achieved, if you could achieve this, you could do anything. They created a new demand, which is encapsulated in the term, no peace without Spain. In other words, the Archduke Charles must have the throne of Spain. Philip v, Felipe V must be thrown off, and the Austrian prince must have the throne of Spain. You'll recall that the terms of the Grand Alliance didn't call for that in the first place. So they entered a new aim into the war. And it was a terrible gaffe, terrible blunder, brought about by such wonderful, wonderful success. And the war went on. The following year, defeat for the Allies in, in Spain, where it mattered most, perhaps, at Almanza, Allied army destroyed by a French and Franco-Spanish army. The uh, Franco-Spanish army was commanded by an Englishman, by the way, the Duke of Berwick. James Fitzjames, the illegitimate son of James II, whose mother was Marlborough's sister. So, a French, so an Englishman was commanding the French army, and, um, but there was a Huguenot officer, K. 
commanding the Anglo-Spanish army. So you had a, a Frenchman commanding the Anglo-Spanish army, an Englishman commanding the, the French army. Wonderful days. The following year, 1708, Battle of Oudenard on the Scheldt River, just to the west of, of Brussels, where Marlborough destroyed... The, well, wrong, he didn't. He beat the Duke of Vend- Vendôme's army uh, and drove them to, up to uh, the north of Flanders to hide behind the Ghent-Bruges Canal. And Marlborough then went on to lay siege to uh, and take the great city of Lille in northern France. So you now had an Allied army camping in northern France. This was the scale of defeat for, for Louis XIV. But the siege of Lille took three months, actually nearly four months, between August and December. December the 9th, 1708, the citadel at Lille capitulated, Marshal Boufflers handed, handed it over. And those four months couldn't be got back. One of, those, one of these precious military commodities, time, was lost. You lost those four months, you never get them back. And this success Ludenard, so daringly seized by Marlborough, had then been dragged to a halt with four months of siege of Lille. Louis XIV wrote to Boufflers with permission to capitulate the citadel, and he wrote, you are to assure the garrison high and low that I have every reason to be satisfied with them. Every reason to be satisfied with them. He knew what four months meant to Marlborough, what those lost four months meant. But that winter was a bitterly cold, one of the worst winters in European history. The vines and Avignon froze, men dropped dead on the march, not more than centuries standing still died of frost. Men actually marching dropped dead. It was so cold. And again, Saint-Simon wrote, sitting in his room in Versailles, he was trying to write a letter, and he dipped his pen in the inkwell, and by the time he got to the page, the ink had frozen on the pen. That was actually in the room in Versailles. Bitterly cold, distress in France, the harvest had failed, there were bread riots. Louis XIV was at his lowest point. And he had been presented with peace terms actually from 1706 onwards, there have been talks about peace which had come nowhere. And so low was Louis XIV bought at the end of 1708 that the peace terms which had been delivered to him, including no peace without Spain, he felt he must accept. And everyone thought that peace had come. The war was over and the alliance was triumphant. It had gained everything it wanted. All those aims that I set out at the start were, were granted. And preparations were made to actually disband the Allied armies. And um, everything seemed to have come to a, a neat conclusion for the Grand Alliance, except made incredibly ambitious and stupid with these successes. They added in a last final clause, a fatal clause, to the peace preliminaries, which was that not only was Felipe V to vacate the throne of Spain in favour of and hand it over to Archduke Charles, but that if he failed to do so within a stipulated time, two months, that Louis XIV would use his own troops to, dispos- to throw him off the throne. The Allies wouldn't have to do it. Louis XIV would, do- would force his own grandson off the throne. And, of course, this was a terrible misreading of Louis XIV, however low he might have been brought, and indeed of the French generally, because in the Grand Council of Versailles, Louis XIV, in tears, in fact, said to his council, this is something I must do for my people. We must have peace. And the Grand Dauphin, called the Grand Dauphin because he was so large, his, his son once stood up to his father. And, and the two of them had an argument in the council room. And the Dauphin said, waving his finger under his father's nose, which is something you didn't do to the son king, a king of France can make war upon his enemies but should not do so on his grandchildren. Louis XIV, with typical French Gallic emotion, Again, tears streamed down his face, embraced his son, 
and threw the peace preliminaries on the floor and walked over them as he left the room. And they were sent back to the Allies, rejected entirely on, on, that, one, on that one clause. And, and there was astonishment in the Allied camp because it was assumed it was a fait accompli, they'd won. And, and Marlborough, in fact, when he heard that the peace preliminaries had been sent back rejected, said, what? And are there no new terms? In other words, are the French making no new suggestions? The answer was no. They've rejected a lot. And so the war had to go on. A war no one could afford, no one wanted anymore. But such is, such is the way of things. And that took place by May 1709. Late campaigning season. There wasn't very much that could be achieved by Marlborough and Eugène in the year. But they laid siege to Tournai and took it uh, and went on to lay siege to Mons on the Franco-Belgian uh, Franco, uh, border. And Louis XIV, dismayed at the loss of Tournai, one of his major fortresses, sent word to the, his army commander, now Marshal Villars, Claude Louis Hector de Villars, that Mons was to be saved. The cost is not to be considered. Now, Villars was a naturally very aggressive soldier, and uh, such an instruction from his king was an outright order to go out and, and, and fight a battle, which he did at Malplaquet, to the south of Mons, just the north of Valenciennes and Mauberge, on the 11th of September, 1709. most terrible grinding battle. And Marlborough forced the French army off the field of battle after a day of very, very heavy fighting. A day that cost the Allies, the French army, some 13,000 casualties. Cost Marlborough's army 22,000 casualties. It was the heaviest butcher's bill in a battle until the Battle of Borodino in 1812. Not for another 103 years would there be a battle like it. Uh, and Europe was shocked. It was almost as if th- thing, you know, things were getting out of hand. Where were the wonderful victories of Ramillies with, with a, co- a cost of less than 3,000 casualties? Where were the 13,000 unwounded French prisoners of Blenheim? 22,000 Allied casualties at Malplaquet, 13,000 French. 500 unwounded French prisoners at Malplaquet. And that's not defeat, you see. They were driven off the field and they failed, but they weren't defeated. The French like to think of Malplaquet as a victory, but they're wrong, because they fought at Malplaquet to save Mons. And six weeks later, Mons fell, and the French army could do nothing about it. But it was hardly a victory for Marlborough, a success perhaps, but very heavily qualified. And of course, he took, he, he took tremendous criticism, particularly from his own political opponents in London at this cost. Interestingly enough, there's very little criticism in Holland, whose own soldiers had suffered so badly in the battle. So the war went on. 1710, while Marlborough was fighting his way through the fortress belt along France's northern border, you had two defeats for the Allies in Spain at Brihuega, where a British army was defeated by the Duke de Vendôme, the chap who'd lost at Oudenard. And the following day at Villa Vichicotza, where Field Marshal Count von Starenberg, the, the Austrian Imperial commander, fought Vendôme's army to a standstill, but had to leave Vendôme in in charge of the field at the end of the day. So technically speaking, Vendôme had the success. The Allies were failing in Spain, and that was in a way where it counted most. You have all the victories you wanted in Germany and and, and the Low Countries. If you couldn't win in Spain, you weren't winning a war, which now had, as one of its names, no peace without Spain. And the the additional difficulty for the Allies was that Emperor Leopold was now dead, and so his oldest son had taken the throne. His oldest son was not... In, in that good health. Who was the younger son? The younger son was Archduke Charles, Archduke Carl, who would be King of Spain. The other problem was that Felipe V of Spain, the young Frenchman, was proven rather popular with Spanish. He learnt, he learnt to speak Spanish, as had his wife. He was a rather sensible young man, and they rather liked him. 
And by and large, the Spanish people weren't that taken with the idea of having an Austrian prince forced on them. So the Allies, while in many cases winning the war on the battlefield, were losing the war in the wider sense. But again, could they, could they be made to see this? In 1711, Karl, Archduke Karl, Archduke Charles, who would have been Carlos III of Spain, became the emperor when his brother died. Now, if you can't have the king of France, who's also the king of Spain, arguably you can't have the imperial emperor in Vienna, who was king of Spain as well. But the demand wouldn't, was not dropped. It was still a demand that, you, that he had to be the king of Spain. This sort of pig-headedness in the alliance, which I'm, again dates back, I've no doubt, to the wonders of this year, where they created the idea of no peace without Spain, went on. All this while, I should say, I've already mentioned the peace negotiations here, which failed. All this while, talks were going on behind the scenes between the French uh, and the British, the Dutch, and to a lesser degree, the Austrians, behind the scenes, trying to find a solution. And it was becoming increasingly evident to some, to many, that the war was no longer worth fighting. And it's, in fact, a war about itself. The war was being fought for its own sake. And in 1712, at a time when the war was still... Oh, by the way, Marlborough was dismissed on the 31st of December, 1711. 31st of December, by the way, was not New Year's Eve at the time. New Year's Eve was March the 24th, because under the old calendar, the New Year started on Lady Day in March. And so at the time, um, January 1712, as we would understand, it would be 1711. But we'll stick with the modern, the modern usage. 31st of December, Marlborough was dismissed by Queen Anne, and his role as the commander of the British troops in the Low Country was given to James Butler, the Duke of Ormond, second Duke of Ormond, who was not a man of the, of the same qualities. He was honest and honourable enough, but he wasn't as good a soldier as Marlborough, and therefore the British war effort was languishing. It was also languishing because Britain agreed terms with France. I was about to say on the quiet, and it was done confidentially, but... It, must have been, it was not a secret, it could not be a secret, that Britain was in close negotiation with France to bring the war to an end. And, of course, you'll recall from the aims of the Grand Alliance that Clause 8 was that no separate peace was to be made by the parties. So this was in contravention of the Treaty of Grand Alliance of 1701. Britain was agreeing terms with France behind closed doors, as it were, in large part because the Dutch and the Austrians wouldn't take part in the, those discussions. So there's an, ele an element of blindness about this, and during the course of 1712, the notorious restraining orders, as they were known, were sent out from London by Tory, the Tory administration to Ormond, the British commander, that he was withdraw his troops from, that, from active campaigning. And so the British troops began to withdraw from, from the war. The German troops and Danish troops, who were paid for by British gold, remained on campaign, despite instructions being sent to them from London, or sent to their rulers but from London. But people like the Elector of Brandenburg, uh, King of Prussia, the Elector of Hanover, now George, because Sophia Dorothea had died, King of Denmark, they were not to be badgered by London. They left their troops in, in the field because they, they felt they still had something to gain. And we must remember, of course, that in those days all these rulers were doing this because they thought they had, there was something in it for them. There was very little altruism about all this. And, of course, from Britain's point of view... What Britain had to gain from it was the agreement with France and to withdraw from a ruinously expensive war. The end result was, in 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht, the treaties, because there were a number of different treaties, which we call the Treaty of Utrecht, were agreed, 11th of April, that the principal one was signed, and subsequently followed in 1714 by the treaties of Rastatt and Baden, which brought an end to the war between France and Austria, 
and the Treaty of Madrid in 1715, which brought an end to the war between uh, Spain and Portugal. Because I should say, which I didn't mention earlier, that amongst the allies of the Grand Alliance, of course, you had the main protagonists, Britain, Holland, Austria. You had the Duke of Savoy, and you had uh, the Kingdom of Spain, a uh, Kingdom of Portugal as well, in addition to allies such as Denmark, Prussia, Hanover, and so on and so forth. So the whole war, ruinously expensive war, came to an end with the treaties of Utrecht and the subordinate treaties of Baden, uh, Rastatt, Baden and Madrid it, between 1713 and 1715. Interesting enough, the war between Austria and Spain didn't come to an end until, until 1720 with the Treaty of The Hague, when em, the Emperor, Emperor Karl, at last gave up his, his claim to the throne of Spain. But that was a, almost, almost a, separate, a separate arrangement, a separate deal. A canter through the war of the Spanish succession, which brings us to the treaty itself. And I say the treaty was, was a series of treaties, principally between France and the 11th, one on the 11th of April, was between France, Britain, Prussia and Hanover, and subsequent treaties between France and Holland, and the next year, a treaty between France and Austria. And these are the principal facets of the, of the treaty. Felipe V, the Duc d'Anjou as he was, to be recognised as King of Spain and the Indies. It was also important, of course, an important provision, that the throne of Spain and the throne of France should always be kept separate, which was encapsulated into this, this provision. Whether that was actually legally enforceable is another matter entirely, but it was part of the treaty. Austria, you remember one of the aims of the alliance was that Austria should receive territorial concessions in return for a French prince given the throne of Spain. Well, she did. Naples, Sardinia, the Milanese, or much of the Milanese, and the southern Netherlands, from now on to be known as the Spanish Netherlands, until the Revolutionary Wars came along and everything changed, were to go to Austria. Within the Spanish Netherlands, Holland was to retain, to regain an amended barrier, get back its barrier towns that were taken by French troops in 1701. And that was separate to, um, subject to a separate treaty, a barrier treaty, between Austria and Holland in 1715, which is a, a sort of by-treaty. France would retain Alsace and Strasbourg, uh, which previously, Alsace in particular, had been a kind of client state rather than a part of, of um, France as such, and Strasbourg, and was to get back Lille and much of Artois Flanders, which Marlborough parked his army on for the previous seven or eight years. Part of this also was that France was to demolish the fortifications of the port of Dunkirk and to fill in the harbour. From Britain's point of view, this is important because Dunkirk was a, a, a hotbed of French pirates and privateers. And so, again, pl- commercial advantage, Dunkirk was to be demolished, which it was eventually. It took the French a long time to do it, but eventually they did. From Britain's point of view, and almost one of the principal provisions from Britain's point of view, the Hanoverian succession to the British throne was assured. France agreed that they would no longer support the Jacobite claim to the throne of, of England and Scotland, or the throne of Great Britain. And we must remember now that back in 1713, 1714, this was of particular importance. Queen Anne was ailing, she was an elderly woman, she was going to pass away very shortly. Who was going to be her successor? Would it be German George, the Elector of Hanover, or would it be James III, the old pretender as he became? And it's not that wasn't that long in the past that you'd had this English civil wars and all the nonsense of the Monmouth Rebellion and what have you. Britain didn't want that, and it was almost as much as anything else that Britain was striving for. 
the French support for the Protestant succession, a key feature of the treaty. In addition to which, a tremendous amount of commercial advantage for Britain. Britain retained Menorca and Gibraltar, both of which they'd seized in the name of the King of Spain, I have to say, uh, the Archduke Charles during the war. Newfoundland, Arcadia, uh, places such as Prince Edward Island and Cape, Bre Cape Breton Island and what is now Quebec, what we know in those days as Acadia. St Kitts in the Caribbean, one of the very valuable spice and sugar islands, and also gained the Ascentio for 30 years. Now, the Ascentio gave you a monopoly of the slave trade, that only you could regulate the slave trade for 30 years. Tremendous commercial advantage for Great Britain. And we can see here the founding of the British Empire, the British worldwide empire, and where the wealth and influence for Britain came. Now, of course, Britain would lose much of this over time in terms of territory, Newfoundland, Arcadia. And we also got um, sovereignty over the Iroquois Indians, by the way. No one asked them, I'm sure. But that, that was granted as well. And so French influence in North America was drastically cut back in favour of Great Britain. An empire which, of course, we, we lost when we gave up the war for American independence in the 1780s. But went on to found another empire in India. Kingdom of Prussia was recognised by France. No longer the Elector of Brandenburg, but the King of Prussia. Prussia got most of Gwelderland uh, on the Rhine, although Holland got part of it as well. In exchange for France giving up any claim to Gwelderland, Gwelderland is the area around Gok and Cleve, and of Cleves came from, of course, that sort of area. Prussia gave up Orange in, in, in southern France. Prince of Orange. Orange comes from a, a territory in the south of France, not far from Avignon. I can't now remember why Prussia had it in the first place. It's some dynastic thing, but um, Prussia said, OK, we're not going to ask Orange back, we'll have Gwelderland instead. And Savoy, the Duke of Savoy, was to receive Sicily and part of the Milanese, the part, that part which Austria didn't get. He would eventually give up his, his own claim to the throne of Spain, as I say, in time. And Portugal, the other party of the Grand Alliance, regained trading rights it lost during the war along the Amazon and in, in Uruguay, which had been seized by the Spani Spaniards. And also there was an agreement that France should limit its own territorial acquisitions in southern South America. And so French Guiana, which they still have today, was territorially limited by the Treaty of Utrecht. These are the principal features of the Treaty of, uh, of, of Utrecht. And as I say, there, are, there were a series of treaties, but the key one was on the 11th of April, 1713, because if, if Great Britain and France had agreed a treaty, together with their allies... Prussia and Hanover and Denmark, then the war was at an end because the, the other allies weren't going to go on fighting it. Holland subsequently signed later in the year and the following year after a, a year or so's unproductive arid campaigning on the Rhine by Prince Eugène, Austria and, and France agreed at Rostat and Baden, those treaties. And I say the following year you had the Treaty of Madrid uh, which, which formalised things between Spain and Portugal. So... Was the Treaty of Utrecht a good thing? The Two of Swords reversed. Those of you who are familiar with the tarot deck will know that the Two of Swords reversed indicates conflict without reason, strife without purpose, an argument pursued for its own sake. And I think the war had become that by 1712. It was like the Two of Swords reversed. And there is much criticism of Great Britain for, in effect, going behind the back of her allies and negotiating a peace with France. But I don't buy that. Great Britain and British politicians, people like Bolingbroke, 
who was much criticised subsequently by, by the Whig, Whig ministries, talked about you know, double-dealing, underhand-dealing and treachery and abandoning your allies and leaving them in the lurch. I don't buy that at all. This war had to be brought to an end. Someone had to have the wit and wisdom to bring it to an end. And actually British politicians and French politicians had that wit and wisdom. And it's all very well saying, oh, treaty obligations are, are, are sacred and mustn't be, uh, mustn't be trammelled. And you think of the Clause 8, not to make a separate peace. In 1707, the Emperor of Austria had made a separate treaty with France, agreeing to cease hostilities in Italy, because it suited him, because he wanted to fight a rebellion in Hungary. And those French troops who no longer had to fight in Italy could go and fight Marlborough in the Low Countries. So, you know, it's all fair in love and war. And there was much rhubarbing about Britain's underhanded dealings, but I don't go along with it. The war for Spain came to an end. That was the key point. This war that no one had wanted in the first place, but no one could avoid. It was ruinously expensive. Uh, and what was to happen? Were you to just go on fighting a war that no longer had a purpose? Karl was now the emperor in Vienna. Felipe V was comfortably ensconced in, in, in Madrid. And the Spanish people liked him. The Catalans didn't, by the way. I should talk about Barcelona. They, they, they stayed true to the, uh, the Habsburg claimant, Karl, to the very end and suffered for it. But what are you going to do? Fight on for another year? Have another 10,000 soldiers smashed on the battlefield just so you can't, can't I don't have the sense to, to find a peace? So actually, the war for Spain was an end. Rather optimistically, in terms of perpetual amity and confederations, it was put in the treaty itself. Well, we all know all about that. A balance of power. Was this a balance of power? Or was it, as John Wilkes put it, a peace that passeth all understanding? Because Wilkes was a Whig, and the Whigs were very anti the treaty from the, from the, from the first. What was the pr practical result? The power of France was limited. Never again would uh, a French monarch like Louis XIV be able to dominate Western Europe until the time of Napoleon. Not for 100 years, 90 years, let's say, would France be able to throw its weight around in, in Western Europe in the way that Louis XIV had done, and have its own way to the same extent. There would be wars fought, of course. Uh, we, we saw British troops at places like Dettingen, Fontenoy, Lafeld, Rocroy, Warburg, Minden. You know, there were plenty of, of wars, but never again would France be in this preeminent position of dominating and threatening Western Europe. I say never again, not until the Revolutionary Wars threw everything into the pot and the Emperor Napoleon came along. Spanish integrity was assured, but with diminished influence. When I say Spanish integrity, the Spanish Empire, albeit divided, with the loss of the Milanese, the Balearic Islands, Sardinia, the Spanish Netherlands, now the Austrian Netherlands, it was nonetheless still its own country. It could run its own affairs. It was an integral, integral unto itself, with its own king. Felipe V, having been welcomed by the Spanish generally, turned out to be quite a good king, and he abdicated at one point, uh, in favour of his younger son. But his younger son made such a fist of it that he came back and, and made his younger son abdicate in his, uh, his favour. So he was king twice. But he was actually quite a good king. Uh, although he had terrible trouble with his family, which is not un unknown amongst royal families. But Spanish integrity was assured under the treaty. Austria was satisfied with its gains and, for, um, really because it had no alternative, turned its attention to the east, to Hungary, where there was rebellion, as I mentioned a little earlier, and of course the Ottoman threat from the southeast, and we can see that Austria turned to the east, and they lost interest in a way in the Rhine, the Rhine barrier, the old Holy Roman Empire of the Germanic elector states. Still had the, the Austrian Netherlands, of course, but in the 1790s, Emperor Joseph, 
demolished all their fortifications in the in the Austrian Netherlands. So come the Revolutionary Wars, the French army could just march in. So in a way, the Austrians had turned to the east, and we can see the Austro-Hungarian Empire that lasted until 1918 was largely that of South and Eastern Europe, as opposed to any interest in Western Europe, as previously. Dutch security was assured with the return of their barrier, but Holland, in a way, was the loser in this war. Holland was broken financially by the war, in a way that Britain wasn't, and could ne- and never regained its former position as a world power. And it went into to decline as a world power. Uh, and it became a, a more minor state. I wouldn't say a minor state, because its, its influence was still very strong in Europe. But it no longer had pretensions, pretensions to be a world power. Uh, and, and the Dutch overseas possessions were, were very small by compared to those which Britain subsequently acquired or France acquired. British interests were enhanced. I've already mentioned the commercial advantages, the uh, territorial gains abroad. And of course and not wishing to over-egg it, the Protestant succession. When Queen Anne died, George, the Elector of Hanover in 1714, came back and got the uh, the Hanoverian succession to the throne of England. And by and large, people accepted him. He was the the Protestant heir. And whatever one may have thought of George, the fact he couldn't speak English, and his terrible mistresses, whose nicknames, if I remember, were the elephant and the, the giraffe, he was Protestant. And funny as it may seem to us now, that mattered an awful lot then. And German states' interests were enhanced. The role played by the German states in the war, in particular Prussia and Hanover, but also Hesse and Saxony, marked them out as people of, of importance, people to be noticed, people who had carried weight in, in, in Europe. In particular, Hanover, with, of course, the connection to, to, to Great Britain, which came with the Hanoverian succession, but also Prussia. And increasingly, Prussia and Prussian voices in German affairs would grow until, of course, we saw with the advent of the 1870-1871 Franco-Prussian War, you've got German unification and the modern German state as we know it today. And one can see that it stands, it stems rather, from this time, this, this increase in German importance and influence. And I should add to all of this, coming back to this balance of power bit, the balance of power ensured that no one state was too powerful and was in a position to overawe and overbear and overpower everyone else. France could no longer do so and wouldn't be able to do so until the Napoleonic times and the power of Germany, as seen in the 20th century, wouldn't, wouldn't be a reality for many, many years to come. So a balance of power, which was, in a way, what was being sought under the terms of the original treaty, and if I, the original alliance rather, with the thrones of Spain and France to be kept separate, had been achieved. A balance of power had been achieved. And all subsequent European treaties for the next hundred years took as their starting point the Treaty of Utrecht. Everything else stood on that. It was almost as if you'd drawn a a line under the old world and moved forward into a new world. And therefore, I do think it was a good thing on two counts. First of all, the war came to an end. And secondly, all other treaties, because a balance of power had been achieved, all other treaties stood upon the Treaty of Utrecht. This talk was recorded on the 31st of October 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>